Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the cities or powers associated with yoga practice. With me is Professor Debashish Banerjee, who is the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Cultures at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he is also chairman of the Department of East-West Psychology. Dr. Banerjee is the author of Seven Quartets of Becoming, which is his interpretation of the yoga psychology of Sri Aurobindo. He has also recently edited an anthology called Critical Post-Humanism and Planetary Futures. Welcome, Debashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. Always a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you, too, and to discuss the cities. Interesting, it's a topic that's not frequently discussed, but it's of great fascination uh, to everybody. And I know that in the Yoga Sutras and, and, and much of the ancient literature of yoga, the cities are emphasized. Yes, uh, indeed. So there there are sections in the Yoga Sutra that talk about siddhis and uh Evidently, by the time the Yoga Sutra was written, which is considered to be around the 4th or 5th century CE, uh, the idea of uh, eight siddhis, ashta siddhis, was already quite uh, prevalent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they mentioned these, and they mentioned these uh, as specific siddhis as well. And how to get at them, uh, just, just in passing. Mm -hmm. Well, I understand that there is something of a, um, divergence of thinking with regard to the th cities, that the, the tantric traditions emphasize them more in the Vedanta uh, tradition of yoga philosophy or Indian philosophy tends to de-emphasize the cities. Uh, yes, to some extent, because what happens with a number of teachers is that they feel that the siddhis can be a kind of a deterrent to further progress, particularly in Vedanta. So if one is looking for transcendence, then these can actually keep you locked into, uh, you know, the, the, the exercise of paranormal powers, mm -hmm. which is, which is an, could be an intoxication in itself. Uh, so a lot of teachers will de-emphasize the Siddhis, but most, uh, Yogis uh, develop siddhis at some point, and even the ones who are de-emphasizing it often have siddhis and mm -hmm. use them uh, mm -hmm. as well. Well, it's not uncommon, and I, and I think people reading through the comments section of uh, many of the videos that I publish on parapsychology will right. see there occasionally people who report they have this power and they have that power, and you get the sense that there is a certain amount of ego attached to the idea that, you know, I can do magic. Yes, indeed. And and yet, uh, on, on the one hand, we all have latent powers, and it's part of human potential to explore these powers. And on the other hand, as you mentioned, uh, Tantra actually looks at magic as a legitimate goal of human existence. 
we one of our drives is is to maximize our power over the world and over our environment and so that's how tantra looks at uh the development of of cities mm-hmm. now in your book seven quartets of becoming you you have uh, really enumerated as i recall 28 different cities ca- in in seven different categories that's quite true uh jeffrey so seven quartets which is uh, seven fours mm-hmm. uh, make up the 28 and this is really a way in which sri aurobindo organized his own practice of integral yoga uh, in the early period. He's given a number of formulations of wh- how one can get to an integral practice. And it can be open to, to the individual as well, how they want to uh, organize their own practice. But his own practice uh, was organized in terms of these uh, seven fours. And each one of these seven is a discipline and within the discipline, there are four fulfillments. So he's using Siddhi in this broader way. But these Siddhis include uh, what we call paranormal powers or what you might call tantric Siddhis as mm-hmm. well. Well, why don't we go into some of the details of the particular ones? Right. And so uh, the way in which he organizes the, these these uh, seven quartets uh is, as I see it, as I've interpreted it, in the form of a yantra. And uh, a, a, a yantra is, as you know, a kind of an engine. It's an engine of practice. Mm-hmm. And it's diagrammed according to uh, a certain combination of triangles and squares and things like that, which geometrically give us an image of the dynamics uh, of the various uh, energies that are supposed to be practiced. Mm-hmm. And so in in his scheme, the seven are broken up into three general uh, lines of practice and four specific lines of practice. And these general lines of practice are, uh, he uses the Sanskrit, but I'm translating it, uh, the quartet of being, which he calls Brahma Chatushta or Brahman, the achievement of Brahman, which is the quintessential Vedantic goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, that's at one pole. At the other pole, there is the quartet of action, or how does one do purposive action in the world mm-hmm. uh, from a higher consciousness, from, from a divine consciousness. And in the middle of these is the perfection. Uh, so it's it's almost like a fractal definition. It's the quartet of Siddhi. Sometimes he calls it the quartet of yoga. But uh, this fulcrum uh, is really that which connects the two mm-hmm. uh, poles that could be considered the pole of Vedanta and the pole of Tantra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and around the pole of Vedanta are two subsidiary uh, or specific disciplines related to transcendence. Uh, one is the achievement of peace. So he calls it Shanti Chatushta. And the other is the achievement of knowledge. And by that he means knowledge by identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if one experiences Brahman as the only being there is, then one can know things by identity of consciousness. So that becomes what he calls uh, the quartet of knowledge of Vijnana Chatushta. And connected with 
purpose of action, you have the tantric, uh, you know, uh, disciplines. Mm-hmm. One is called the discipline of shakti, of power, and the other is the discipline of the body. So, sharira chatushtaya and uh, shakti chatushtaya. Chakushtaya. Uh, chatushtaya. Chatushtaya. Ch- yeah. Ch- chatushtaya means quartet. I see. Of four. Uh-huh. So, each one of these have got four, uh, you know, fulfillments mm-hmm. or, or goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can look at uh, the general, it'll be too, maybe too elaborate to look at all of them. Yeah. But just to point out how this, uh, this system is working, we can look at the yoga, ch- the central one, the yoga chatushtaya. And uh, the four goals there are, uh, shutti, which means purification, mukti, which means liberation, uh, bhukti, which means enjoyment, and siddhi, which means uh, fulfillment of uh, of the latent powers. Mm-hmm. So, as you can see, the just just as the entire uh, diagram is composed of an upper hemisphere that can be Vedantic and a lower hemisphere that is tantric. In each of them, you have four elements. Two of them will be Vedantic, and two of them will be tantric. So, liberation and purification are Vedantic goals, while enjoyment and the siddhis are mm-hmm. the tantric goals. This kind of scheme is repeated everywhere, so it's like an intertwining of the two going it on. suggests that there's always a certain amount of dynamic tension between being and doing. Very true. In a, in a, in a, in a quintessential sense, you could say that. Uh-huh. Or you could see that he's actually boiling down human, uh, drives. It's, it's almost a psychology of drives, uh-huh. uh, to two primordial drives. One is a drive to transcendence, which really gets mapped onto Vedanta. And the other is the drive to power, mm-hmm. to the maximization of one's power and, and, and pleasure, bliss in the world. And so these two are t- intertwined. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually what happens is one of the, uh, you know, goals like uh, uh, that of Sankhya or of Advaita Vedanta, they privilege Vedanta over the other, mm-hmm. the, the, the drive to magic, one yes. may say. The drive to transcendence, which is our spirituality, mm-hmm. is privileged over magic, and that's made into something uh, demoted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those who go after the drive for magic, they uh, put aside the drive for transcendence. Mm-hmm. But he looks at that's that's the basis of the one of understanding of the integral. That is, the two have to both be achieved. A sort of balance. A balance and at a certain level, a unity of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and we discussed the, the idea of, of Maya in a, in an earlier yes, we conversation. Did. Mm-hmm. And that, that there are two, in Vedanta, there are two levels. There is the level of the undivided realm, uh, which is called Vidya or knowledge and the realm of the divided realm, which is called avidya or ignorance. Mm-hmm. So in Sankhya, uh, the realm of ignorance or avidya is spoken of in a slightly different way in terms of consciousness and nature. Mm-hmm. So that which is conscious in us, which is completely free because totally conscious, is called purusha as g- and gendered male, while that which is uh, natural in us, 
and therefore uh, determined by various laws, the laws, laws of matter, the laws of animal behavior, the laws of psychology, that is nature or that is called prakriti, gendered female. Mm -hmm. So in Sankhya, they note that the two, it's a dualistic system, the two are separate from one another. They're intertwined, but mm -hmm. that they can be separated. And they look to separate them so that the purusha can be free yeah. of its conditioning by nature. While in, in Sri Aurobindo's case, he acknowledges that, but also puts them in relation mm -hmm. and says that uh, once each one is maximized, one can rise to uh, the level of, uh, of, of Vidya, above the, the mm -hmm. veil of Maya, where the two are seen as one. I, I see. You know, the problem that I have and yes. many Westerners pro possibly have with this system is yes. that it's very ancient and, yes. and there are many different systems being overlaid right. upon each other. So yes. you have Purusha and Prakriti, you have Atman and uh, Brahman. True. Uh, sometimes I find uh, <laughs> it gets very confusing to uh, it, it understand does. all the subtleties and nuances. It's true. And I think uh, one of the interesting things we see with uh, this kind of a scheme, mm -hmm. and it's not only happening with Sri Aurobindo, it's the entire history of yoga. Mm -hmm. We see that there is a constant conversation with the past and with the different schools. Yes. Uh, often modern scholars don't recognize that. They're either looking for purity of tradition yeah. or they're looking to create something transpersonal, which escapes from all that and gives a single uh, scheme. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's a creative process yeah. by which these schemes are made. Mm -hmm. And part of that is this conversation with the past and the integration mm -hmm. or synthesis of various systems that is constantly going on. I've had some of the yeah. same issues in, in dealing with uh, the lectures and writings of the Dalai Lama, where right. it's almost medieval in, in a way, like long lists. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, but I mm -hmm. agree, uh, Jeffrey. So the, the interesting thing with Sri Aurobindo is that he's also uh, at, at the same time trying to translate this mm -hmm. into a more transpersonal terms. Yeah. So that's the reason why in his texts we find th these are his early uh, approaches and mm -hmm. they are extremely rooted in the traditions. Mm -hmm. He's creating his own dialogue, one yeah. may say, with the history of Indian yoga. Yeah. But his later writings are, uh, he's creating his own more transpersonal language mm -hmm. Uh, that lends itself to more modern understandings. And I think one of the things I've tried to do mm -hmm. is to make these two systems converse. Yeah. Well, let's start for a moment with the body. Right. The um, viewers of this series know I'm a parapsychologist, yes. and I focus quite a lot on uh, the paranormal aspects that are studied by parapsychologists, right. extrasensory perception, and uh, things of that sort. Yeah. But many of the cities, and I think many viewers would be quite interested in knowing what are the powers that are associated with the human body? They're not always even thought of as paranormal. Quite, quite true, uh, Jeffrey. So, uh, it, you know, the, the powers connected with the body in this system, uh, some of them are 
described through the quartet of the body. Mm -hmm. But then there are some that are described in other quartets as well. Yes. But I'd like, I'd just to start with the body, mm -hmm. uh, the four that are related to the body, the four major uh, goals mm -hmm. of the body in this system are, uh, I'll, I'll give the Sanskrit and translate as well. Okay. Uh, arogya, uh, is the first one. And arogya literally means, uh, freedom from disease. And stretched a little further, it means physical immortality. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the goals of, uh, many archaic systems. I think it's a goal of magic. Magic and alchemy are holding this up as a certain kind of possibility. Mm -hmm. Can we achieve physical immortality? Mm -hmm. Uh, the second one is, uh, uh, after Arogya, we talk about, um, uh, well, the third one is Sondarya, which means beauty. So we are coming to something slightly different. And in his scheme, everybody is beautiful. This, this isn't a kind of elitism, mm. which has a certain standard to it. Mm -hmm. uh, he's saying that <coughs> all, all expressions have beauty behind it. But to actually express the soul, of that particular being is to express the fullness of the beauty. Mm -hmm. So how do we get to that is, is that individual's expression of beauty. Now, the second one I, I remembered now is Uttapana, which is levitation. Yeah. And so the term levitation here is a, a kind of a broad term he uses for many paranormal powers of the body. And they map to another quartet in the quartet of knowledge, which is called Ashtasiddhi. And this Ashtasiddhi or eight Siddhis is what we started talking about when we discussed the Yoga the Sutra. Initial, of yes, Patanjali. the Yoga Sutra. Right. right. So the, the eight Siddhis are uh, given as uh, two Siddhis of telepathy. Uh, these are called uh, Prakamya and Vyapti. And I'll, I'll describe them a little bit as we go on. Then there are three siddhis of power, uh, which means how do we achieve things by, uh, you know, by consciousness? How do we maximize our possibility of, of getting something? Mm -hmm. And they are called Aishwarya, Ishita, and Vashita. And then the third one is, um, the third set is, uh, three siddhis of the being, he says. And by this, this connects with the, with the levitation. Yeah. And they are anima, laghima, and mahima. Uh, anima is a siddhi by which, uh, in Patanjali's system, one can grow small at will or even invisible. Mm -hmm. One becomes like an atom. In other words, one disappears. And uh, Lagima is lightness, which ultimately leads to levitation. And Mahima is a kind of uh, a sense of greatness. You know, you may see that in certain cases, somebody may be actually very short, but they give an impression of being very great. So it's this impression of, mm -hmm. of, of greatness, which, mm -hmm. which is Mahima. So these are, uh, part of the large scheme. And then the, the bodies, the fourth uh, goal of the body mm -hmm. is bliss. So there are five forms of physical bliss that he's talking about that uh, he sees as 
occurring through our connections with the world, but also in a sense coursing through the body all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, these five forms of bliss uh, are given as uh, Rodrananda. Rodrananda is like the bliss of pain. In other words, um, you know, when something happens to us where we feel extremely uh, intense, something very intense uh, acting on the body. We feel pain. Yes. But he's saying that that's because of the limitation of the body, that that could be an intensity of bliss. Mm -hmm. And it's also related to one's relationship with the world as uh, how do we look at it as as an enemy or as a friend or as a lover, Mm -hmm. etc. So a really interesting example, he writes a poem about this, uh, is when he gets bitten by a scorpion. This is an actual event mm-hmm. that. Uh, now you're referring to Aurobindo. Uh, Sri Aurobindo, right? He, yes. he he got he got bit by a scorpion, and later wrote a poem about this. Where uh, these lines occur, he says, uh, "The mind ensnared by forms, thought of a scorpion, but the heart rejoiced in lover's contact." So this is what's happening. He's experiencing it as a kind of rapture or bliss, mm-hmm. as if in the disguise of a scorpion, uh, the divine is actually contacting him mm-hmm. in, 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 as a lover. Mm-hmm. So you see, that's a kind of a experience of bliss. The pain becomes a, a form of bliss. Uh, then there is a kind of a bliss called Vaidyutananda, which he says is a coursing of a kind of electricity throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there is one called, uh, you know, the Tivrananda, and that is uh, the hair standing on end. A lot of, uh, you know, adrenaline charge causes mm-hmm. that. So, but one can feel that sort of bliss all the time, a thrill mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And then there is something called Vishayananda, which is the bliss of contact with material things. And finally, there's Maithunananda, which can be translated as sexual bliss. or It's like an erotic charge that is constantly felt by the body. Mm-hmm. So, these forms of bliss are part of the goal of the body, uh, you know, of, of the Sharira Chatushta. So these paranormal powers, powers of longevity and achievement of immortality, powers of bliss, uh, are, are, and, and the, and the siddhis, mm-hmm. the, these are the goals of Tantra. Well, and, and some of these things may seem like completely outside the realm of possibility for people, True. but I know there are many accounts that would attest to them. An autobiography of a yoga, True. uh, Yogananda. Quite writes about uh, a figure he calls Babaji, who, yes. who is supposedly thousands of years old. Sure, sure. And there's an entire tradition in the South of what are called the the, the Siddha Yogas, mm-hmm. uh, Siddha Yogis of the South, yes. uh, that are considered to have achieved immortality, mm-hmm. or at least that was their goal. Mm-hmm. So these become goals of yoga, in a sense, and uh, they become part of his scheme as well. And, and there are Westerners, I know of, who have written books about encounters with some of these beings who, right. in addition to supposedly being, you know, there was a woman named Sandra Ray, as I recall, uh-huh. who wrote a, a book about this, about Babaji, the same Babaji that Yogananda 
uh, refers to. People have had to, encounters with, with some of these beings. Yes. One would, one could even say the life of Christ. Christ himself could be considered one of these yogis mm-hmm. who achieved immortality. Mm-hmm. And people have had encounters with the astral body of Christ, including people like Sri Ramakrishna. Mm-hmm. But now astral body and physical, physical body. Physical body, right, right. It's, uh, it, it's different. I agree. Uh, so physical immortality and to what extent, what is the dividing line yeah. between the astral and the physical? That's it's also it's it's a question. It's a question. It's, it's a deep question. It's a deep question. I I agree. Uh, there is a term imaginal that is sometimes right. used by the philosopher Henri Corbin true. to refer to an ontologically real level of reality. Yes, it's yes, it's yes. not imaginary, no. but it's not physical either. Right, and I think there is a kind of a almost like a a, a kind of transition from mm-hmm. one. There isn't a kind of a cut and drive difference between yeah. the two. Uh, in the Indian systems, when they refer to body, and this ha- happens in the medical systems as well, uh, body is referred to as a conglomerate of a, what, what we might call a gross part, mm-hmm. sthula, and a subtle part, sukshma. So there's a subtle body and a gross body that are Connected, and there is a kind of a transition mm-hmm. from the one to the other. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you know, in quantum physics, we don't know whether a thing is definite or not. It's it's a probability mm-hmm. distribution. Yes. So the body is in a way like that. It's a probability distribution from the subtle to the gross. Well, and that's really how it's perceived in the Sanskrit traditions. Yes, it is, in, mm-hmm. indeed. And I think uh, whether one achieves these goals or not, I mean, in, in the Sri Aurobindo system, in his diaries, mm-hmm. I think he was aiming at these goals, and he was carrying out a certain kind of uh, discipline and a recording of the successes and failures. In his yoga journal. In his yoga journal. So that he was pushing the limits. And I think he was doing this to some extent to demonstrate that all of us can do this. Mm -hmm. We we can work at it. We can experiment with our own powers. Uh, And whether we achieve it or not is a secondary thing. But Mm -hmm. how far can we go with it? This is an individual journey. So by keeping this yoga diary, would you say that Aurobindo is encouraging people to do likewise, to make a diary of their own paranormal uh, experiences? Yes, Jeff. I'm not sure whether he thought of it in terms of something that others ought to do. But I think he did think of it in terms of what James would call a radical empiricism. Radical empiricism. Yeah. And, I, you know, the interesting thing is he had read James. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see connections in his writings where mm-hmm. he's distinctly taking certain things from James. Mm-hmm. William James. William James, The right. founder of American psychology. Right. Yeah. So it isn't that he's doing this in isolation. He, you know, to some extent, he's a modern yogi mm-hmm. who's engaging with traditional practices mm-hmm. with a, a modern outlook. Yeah. Now, some years ago, I interviewed a woman you probably know, Judith Cornell. Mm-hmm. I think she teaches or used to teach at uh, CIIS, the right. university where you are. Mm-hmm. And she was working with a um, female uh, spiritual teacher known as, uh, I think the name was Anandanaya Mayama. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And she said, this is a woman who uh, was renowned throughout the world uh, for hugging people. People would right. come to her by the thousands and she'd hug each and every one. Right. Amritananda Mai, uh, uh-huh. or, 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 or also called Amachi, uh, generally, yes. she has a very large following. Mm-hmm. She's from South India, from mm-hmm. Kerala. And she's famous because she hugs people. Yes. And is considered to embody, uh, a divine power, divine mm-hmm. goddess power. Yes. Uh, and this is very interesting because I, we were talking about the goals of Tantra. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one of the really important, maybe the central goal of Tantra is to embody the goddess. Mm-hmm. So it's really to be possessed by the goddess. Possession. I think Tantra goes back to very early cults where uh, people were trying to attain possession by divine beings. Mm-hmm. So to be possessed by the goddess is is really a goal of, of Tantra. And uh, she uh, embodies that to some extent. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Sri Aurobindo's scheme, as I said, the other side of action is the quartet of Shakti or, or of power. Mm-hmm. And one of the goals there is exactly this. It's called Chandi Bhava. He uses three terms for it. Chandi Bhava, Devi Bhava, or uh, Devi Prakriti. And each of these means essentially for him to become a vessel or a a, a channel for the divine mother mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that she possesses the the human instrument down to the cells of the body mm-hmm. and radiates the the kind of physical uh, emanation of mm-hmm. uh, the goddess. And of course, when I use the word hug, that right. describes what it might look like if you're watching. Right. But from the inside, I, I understand that right. in, in this situation, this this particular person whose name I can't quite pronounce. Yeah, Amritanandamai, yeah. Um, was in a state of constant bliss. In, in fact, it was described as constant orgasmic bliss. It's, it's very possible, yes, yes. I mean, these are things that uh, are pretty much unheard of in the West. True, true. Because I think the full uh, possession by uh, divine power it goes down to the physical body and the five forms of bliss that Sri Aurobindo is talking yeah. about. Uh, are being experienced uh, mm-hmm. on a constant basis there. Yeah. Well, would you say that because of your study of Sanskrit and your exposure throughout pretty much your whole life mm-hmm. to to this knowledge tradition that uh, it's made you personally more open to uh, receiving uh, these gifts? Certainly. I think growing up in India and learning this language, being uh, familiar to some extent with the traditions, uh, made it much easier to be open to uh, these possibilities. Mm-hmm. And I see coming to the West that, uh, of course, there's also the whole issue of modernity and the kind of division that modernity brings into our minds uh, so that it's a much more materialistic understanding that we are invested in mm-hmm. uh, that makes it very difficult to open to these possibilities. But in India, you, you talked about uh, the autobiography of a yogi. Yes. Uh, you, you see that, that uh, Yogananda grew up seeing these kinds of people all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, one doesn't do that even when I was a child. I used to go to Dakshineshwar, where Sri Ramakrishna lived. 
And I remember there were many yogis there that, that, that they used to, they used to be traveling yogis. Mm -hmm. But if you go there today, the number of yogis has diminished considerably and it's become a middle class place, a place of middle class pilgrimage. So I think there's been a change and there's a different kind of more devotional attitude, but also an attitude where these subtler powers have receded a little. But I think still in India, there's sufficient openness to these possibilities mm -hmm. just under the surface. Well, let me ask another probing question. India was, uh, of course, colonized by the British and sure. I think to some extent by the French. Yes. Did that colonization cause the uh, practitioners of yoga and other disciplines to begin to question, you know, the authenticity, the validity of these traditions? Like, how is it that we have a tradition that gives us all these powers and, and yet these outsiders uh, can come in and, and rule us? Very, very true, uh, Jeffrey. So what happens during the nationalist period mm -hmm. is quite a few of the yogis are actually at work uh, to help bring about, uh, you know, freedom from these people. Yeah. And uh, Sri Aurobindo's own entry into yoga mm -hmm. takes place through asking a question like, like the one that, because he was brought up in England. Yes. This is also part of the circumstance of colonization. Mm -hmm. Uh, that his father became an Anglophile. He, he wanted his children to be educated in England, send them to England when he came back. He saw examples of this kind. He saw examples. His, he was in, in, uh, West India, in Baroda, and his younger brother came there and started suffering from malaria, a very virulent form of malaria. Mm. And there was a yogi beggar who came to the door. And, uh, saw the brother lying on the, uh, on the bed and said, what's happened to him? And, and he was told he had malaria. So he said, bring me a glass of water. And so they brought him a glass of water. He took a knife and cut a design on the water and read a mantra and gave it to him. He drank it and the malaria disappeared. So for Sri Aurobindo at that time, who was really, he didn't have any background in all this. He began thinking, is it possible to develop these kinds of powers and can they be utilized to help us uh, win freedom mm -hmm. from colonization? Yeah. So this is really his entry into yoga. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, the, 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 there were yogis. I think one of his teachers was closely connected with nationalism. Mm -hmm. His first teacher who gave him uh, spiritual experiences uh, so I think uh, these kinds of uh, sort of activities were being used in mm -hmm. India to achieve its freedom to some extent. That's very interesting. Uh, another yeah. side of that, uh, mm -hmm. Jeffrey, which is, I think, uh, really pertinent. The Hatha Yoga tradition, which is the tradition of physical yoga, which today has uh, sp spread all over the West as the yoga studio culture, yes. begins in modern times during the Indian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And it begins as uh, a form of uh, body politics because when you're actually being colonized, then you have to develop tolerance in the body. You have to be able to withstand 
the colonization of the body. Mm-hmm. So essentially, uh, these schools started sprouting up where teachers were teaching uh, others on how they could use these forms of physical practice to resist the British uh, and their imprisonment or their beatings and things like that and not feel anything. So this this is one way by which, uh, you know, the, the, they couldn't break the spirit of, of the freedom fighters because they were practicing these things. I see. So the yoga studio movement began in India, really, and then emerged here? Is, is yeah, it wasn't a yoga studio <laughs> movement, but so, I mean, that, that's the, in a way, the paradoxical situation that yeah. it began as an anti-colonial mm-hmm. and a, a kind of a political movement. I see. But now it has become a kind of a consumer <laughs> movement. In, in other words, under the British colonization mm-hmm. uh People in India, like uh, Aurobindo's father, became Anglophiles and maybe lost touch with their own traditions. Right. Right. True. On the other hand, you had some people who were bringing the traditions. They were reinventing the traditions Mm -hmm. in a modern uh, form. Yeah. And I know at the same time, you had uh, scholars coming over from England and other countries who were uh, looking at Tantra and, and yoga and, and uh, we're amazed and so we, we really need to study this. And right, like Sir John Woodruff, yes. for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, the, there is some distortion that also happened as a result of that process mm-hmm. because there was some dumbing down and some orientalizing yeah. and things like that that also happened. Mm-hmm. But uh, it made it possible for these knowledges to resurface. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is the way in which we can revisit our understanding of uh, a greater psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I presume that uh, it would, it, well, some people might say that the, the proper uh, application of the tantric approach is to develop these powers and, and India should colonize Britain. <laughs> that, that would be an inversion of the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, uh, tantric, I mean, the, and ethics comes with this as well. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why some of the teachers don't want you to practice these things to the exclusion of greater goals. Mm-hmm. I think the ethics that comes with it is uh, the ethics of the equality of all human beings, mm-hmm. uh, harmlessness or nonviolence. Uh, the, the ability to do good. Mm-hmm. So I think a Vedanta brings some of these things into it. And there's been a close relationship between yeah. Tantra and Vedanta. So that, uh, the, the, the necessity of utilizing powers for good, for, uh, the benefit of the whole human race, uh, becomes a kind of a, a, a greater goal within and, these And the systems. amazing thing, when I think about the liberation of India from colonial rule, right. is, is that uh, it happened nonviolently. I mean, the British were violent. I know there were massacres. Yeah. And, and uh, the... Uh, did an interview with Stephen Schwartz about the, the salt march and how right. the uh, followers of Gandhi just stood there and allowed themselves to be clubbed right. by, uh, by the and British s- Yes, soldiers. some of these people were, were practicing Hatha Yoga, and that's mm-hmm. what gave them the endurance. But I think, uh, you know, it's true that uh, nonviolence played a very important part, 
But there was a violent side to it as well, mm-hmm. which, which uh, particularly in the early period with people like Aurobindo yes. and uh, right. others in the Bengal uh, movement, mm-hmm. uh, they did cultivate a, a kind of an extremist movement as well, uh, which was also influenced by these kinds of goals. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't so as to invert the entire system and colonize others. It was to get the colonials out, mm-hmm. uh, to decolonize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to allow a more egalitarian system to emerge. But I think it's also fair to point out that the uh, nonviolence uh, advocated by Gandhi, I think it's called Ahimsa, right. uh, was adopted by Martin Luther King. True. And True. Uh, became the basis of the American Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of reverse colonization but, uh, <laughs> uh, of a positive in that sense, yeah. of a positive kind. Yeah. Yes, right. So right. and so in a way, um, when we talk about the cities of the body, the yeah. the ability to engage in nonviolent political uh, action, right. uh, is that a, considered a city? That would be considered a Siddhi as well, uh-huh. certainly. In in some schools, that would be considered, like we were talking about, um, you know, converting pain to bliss. Mm-hmm. So somebody who can do that can experience these forms of, of oppression and be able to withstand them and not even just withstand them as, as toleration, but as uh, as forms of bliss, as, as actual uh, forms of exaltation. Mm-hmm. And I think those are Siddhis as mm, well. That's interesting. Now, I practiced a little bit of Buddhist Vipassana meditation right, right. where they talk about if uh, aversions and, and uh, attractions. And yeah. uh, if you're feeling some discomfort, just realize it's not you. It's just your body. Your nerves are firing signals to which you have an aversion. You can do that. So there's a distance that takes place. Yeah. And your consciousness is able to observe this and not feel that it is being affected with something else. So you, you create a certain kind of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and though there is a, you know, it's almost like distancing. If, if you can listen to, if you put on earplugs, then the sound is going on all the same, but you hear it in a very muffled way. Mm-hmm. It re- gets reduced. So these exercises can reduce in that same way, distance, the effects mm-hmm. uh, on the nerves of the impact of uh, from the outside. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we could talk probably for an hour or more about each individual city, but this one that you're discussing right yeah. now, the ability to take pain and convert right. it into pleasure, yeah. uh, my goodness, the applications of that... Uh, would seem to me to be enormous. True, true. I mean, acupuncture tries that as well. I mean, acupuncture tries to numb us through use of the pressure points in, in the, in the system of nadis Mm -hmm. or, or the channels through which vital energy flows. But, Yoga is a very fast field, and some of these uh, exercises and or some of these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, schools will tell you that whatever you can achieve through external means can be achieved through internal means. Yes. In other words, you can visualize and have power over your body mm-hmm. just through internal meditation. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, back in the days uh, when I practiced psychotherapy, right? Uh, when I lived in California and was licensed there, I had a client who was in extreme pain yes. uh, from uh, crippling disease. Mm -hmm. He was confined to a wheelchair, and the spine was uh, stenosis. All the nerves were getting pinched, wow. and we worked with hypnosis, mm -hmm. and I discovered working with this lady that if she could direct compassion mm -hmm. to her own body so she could experience the pain she was in with compassion, then the pain changed. Wonderful. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. And I think the, the, these kind of methods, which are psychological methods, yeah. in some ways are coming very close to the yogic methods. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah. uh, you know, in effect, teaching her to love right. uh, the pain, to treat it with uh, tenderness and yeah. compassion instead of, I hate the pain. Yeah. That kind of makes it worse. Right, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it, it builds that bliss component. It uh -huh. builds a kind of a... A kind of an aura of, of, of pleasure, which, uh, or of love, of compassion mm -hmm. that has its effect, a reverse effect on the nerves and what the input that they're giving. And when you consider the billions of dollars that people spend on painkillers right, right, e right. every year, I, you know, I think a high percentage, I'm going to say probably a third mm -hmm. of, of the population is uh, taking painkillers. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So, uh, the application of uh, this yoga principle could right. have vast economic sure. implications, <laughs> although the pharmaceutical industry might not be so happy. But yeah, <laughs> true. If, uh, I can imagine the day might come when we move into an era where people rely more on their own inner resources. And absolutely. I, I agree. Uh, my, um, I mean, that that's absolutely true, Jeff. Uh, I think Aldous Huxley was looking at that kind of a future. Mm -hmm. He looks at both sides of it. He looks at the side where these kinds of subjective practices can be utilized by, uh, you know, a kind of a, 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 a sort of a conditioning agent mm -hmm. by, a, a, you know, in, in his book, Brave New World, where you find that people are conditioned by both by external as well as by internal, you know, means. Mm -hmm. And then the utopic last book, Island, where he's looking at uh, these kind of measures uh, or, or, or devices that are being used to create a utopic society. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the future holds this kind of possibility for us. Mm -hmm. Well, I know um, immortality is another yes. w one of these cities. And, Indeed, uh, yeah. Uh, Aurobindo himself was really striving for that. I think he was. He was striving for that. And he talks about that in terms of stages. Mm -hmm. So there are various stages. It doesn't necessarily mean that if one dies, one has not achieved the goal. Mm -hmm. Because the goal is something that one works towards. And there are a number of possibilities through which one has to, or hoops, mm -hmm. through which one has to travel. Uh, I, I'd say uh, some of these stages include being conscious in the process of dying mm -hmm. uh, or transiting from the physical to the astral, as we were discussing, yes. in a completely conscious manner, mm -hmm. uh, being able to choose one's birth. Now, these kind of ideas are very old. The Buddha himself, uh, when we think about the way in which he was born, 
they say that he was born uh, in a way uh, immac- immaculately, you know, that j- just like Christ. Mm. Uh, but in in the Buddhist canon, they're looking at this as a, as a yogic achievement. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was already a siddha is what enabled him to do this. Mm-hmm. So these are stages of uh, conscious passage from one life to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately the ability to take the experience of one life consciously, uh, not uh, through, a, through a death, but through a transition into another life, and then perfecting that instrument Till it comes to a point mm-hmm. that it can actually regenerate itself. It requires being able to think of oneself as being larger than just this particular lifetime. Right. Uh, and and then, you know, what is death? In a sense, I mean, Sri Aurobindo has a line uh, in, in his uh, book, The Synthesis of Yoga. It, it goes something like this. Uh, the condition of a material immortality is to be reborn. Uh, is to be reborn continuously, you know. So we actually are reborn from one life to another. But in a way, we know today that old trees or even every human being, our cells are dying and being reborn. Yes. And so in a sense, uh, that is even uh, in science, we see that that is one of the real problems, that cell division stops at a certain point. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that particular system dies uh, if it can't be reborn. Yeah. So if we have the power of regenerating our body uh, consciously, mm-hmm. then there is a constant death and rebirth uh, process mm-hmm. that we're going through. In, in other words, and that is physical immortality. In to that my sense. understanding, every cell in our bodies gets replaced. Maybe in about seven years. Right. We're not right. the same person We're at not all. not the same person, right? Uh, uh, but it stops mm-hmm. at a certain point, and that's the mm-hmm. reason that we can't continue. Live forever. Yeah, yeah. It, it be, be, that's why people age. That's right. The cells reproduce imperfectly. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These cities are largely overlooked yes. in Western culture. Right. To what extent would you say the people today living in India where they're now a billion yes people to what extent do do they treat these ideas seriously i think as you brought out earlier uh, jeff due to colonization and due to modernity and now due to neoliberal globalization uh, a certain kind of uh, ontology a certain state of being is spreading all over the world and that is a, a major influence in uh, kind of making these things recede to the background mm-hmm. so that people growing up in urban centers today are not in touch with these things, don't even have these as possibilities for exploration. They're not encouraged to explore it. Uh, on the other hand, we may say that nationalism is rising mm-hmm. in many places in the world yes. today, including in India, mm-hmm. so that there is a kind of on the flip side of uh, the ethnocentrism of, of uh, kind of nationalism, mm-hmm. uh, there is also the revisiting of traditions of the past. Yes. So hopefully... Uh, Due to this kind of process, which is really a Janus-faced process, mm-hmm. uh, 
we might begin to see again a, a kind of a interest mm-hmm. in some of the gifts of traditions yeah. that can be brought into the present. You know, there's a real paradox, it is a paradox. there. I consider myself a liberal. When you yes. talk about neoliberalism, I think there are yeah. many wonderful things to to say about it, but neoliberal globalization, yeah. uh, it, there are many viewers of yeah. this program who right. are oriented towards this right-wing nationalism, right. towards which I personally feel no affinity. I, at, I agree. No, at, no, at, no. at all. But I know they're interested in the paranormal. They're interested in these ancient traditions. Yes. And I welcome them. I'm happy to have them as, as viewers. So to me, it's kind of paradoxical. Both sides are paradoxical. Liberalism leads to neoliberal globalization, the importation of multinational corporations all over the world, and the taking over, in a sense, of indigenous knowledges. But on the other hand, you have uh, right-wing nationalism, which uh, stereotypes cultures and pits them against one another, makes them feel superior and brings back, in a sense, a lot of the evils that we thought we had left behind mm-hmm. after the Second World War. Yes. Uh, but a lot of that is coming back. Uh, but at the same time, it has the this other side that it, caused, it makes people look at their own traditions mm-hmm. and revisit them, perhaps for integrating mm-hmm. them into a more uh, uh, kind of universal Culture of the future. Because the conventional liberal point of view about the cities is that it's all superstition, That's which right. I reject. Yes, me too. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and that is, I suppose, at least along that line, is how uh, uh, there's a certain alignment between what I'm doing here and right-wing politics. Yes. And uh I suppose, though, one does have to ask, you know, is is there superstition involved? To, to what extent? It's, it's not as if there's no superstition. Yes, I think that's exactly where we have to bring the best of the two traditions together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where I look at people like William James, mm-hmm. or I look at people like Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo, mm-hmm. that tried to bridge this gap mm-hmm. and find new methodologies yeah. whereby we don't look at this as traditions of superstition, but we can explore, we can experiment, mm-hmm. and we can enlarge our possibilities uh, by looking at traditions. How can we bring the past and the future to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, together? How can we bridge them? And I think that that is uh, part of uh, a new science. Uh, maybe a new city. <laughs> uh, a new city. I mean, Aurobindo, as you point out, talked about balance, the, the, yes. need, the need to balance between Vedanta and Tantra. That's right. It's not so dissimilar from the need to balance between liberalism and right-wing nationalism. Yeah, or science and, 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 and superstition, or science mm-hmm. and... Uh, I wouldn't say superstition. I'd say uh, traditions that are difficult to accept mm-hmm. rationally. The world is being torn apart by many different forces. And yes. it seems to me that this uh, city of balance that yes. we've been talking about right. uh, is is called for. It's it's necessary, yeah. and and it could lead to greatness. Right, exactly, Jeffrey. And so, in the going back to the scheme, one of the cities or one of the disciplines 
is the discipline of balance. Mm-hmm. The same one that's the discipline of peace, uh, which is uh, on, and it, it's called the Shanti Chatushta, the quartet of peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, an alternate name for it is Samata Chatushta, which means the quartet of balance. Mm-hmm. And the four goals of this are, are a progression. So it starts with Samata which means equality or balance. Uh, the second one is shanti, which is peace. Uh, the third one is sukham, which is contentment or happiness. And the fourth one is hasya, which means laughter. Mm-hmm. And so again, we see that the, 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 the four are split into two Vedantic and two Tantric. So samatha and shanti, uh, equality or balance and peace belong to the world of Vedanta, while happiness and laughter belong to Tantra. Mm-hmm. And so we've, and, and there are progression. What, what he's saying is that if we can maintain perfect balance, then things align themselves in a way in which they deepen into peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, as the peace gets deeper, we start experiencing happiness. Mm-hmm. And when the happiness is perfectly firm, then we experience laughter. You know, everything is, is bursting with joy. So I think that that's a certain progression, which is, uh, you know, some, being called for today. Yeah. Now, it happens that at, at the time we're recording this uh, discussion in May of tw- 2019, I hope right. the, this video will be available for a long time mm-hmm. uh, on the Internet. But right at this moment, the uh, there was an election in India. We just heard mm-hmm. the news. Yeah. The right-wing nationalist uh, Hindu party yes. is is in pretty much firm control yeah. of in, of India. Are True. they uh, interested in in the cities that we've been discussing? Yes, there's a possibility that there'll be a kind of a revival of interest in yoga, because one of the ways by which uh, this present party, the the party that has been uh, returned to power, Mm -hmm. it it had the mandate of the people already, and it has returned to power. One of the ways in which it is looking at. identifying the nation, I mean, a a brand identity for the nation Mm -hmm. is yoga. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because indeed, yoga is one of the gifts of India to the world. But uh, it hasn't really looked deeply at what yoga implies. It's still looking at yoga more or less from the viewpoint of the universal yoga studio culture, Uh physical yoga. But all the possibilities of yoga, can they be explored? Can that be a kind of a promotion it's it's a possibility mm-hmm. that the, the, this government will uh, help in that direction. Well, that would be interesting. That I certainly mean, would. I be mean, interesting. I have to say, this discussion is making me feel a little uh, warmer toward <laughs> <laughs> these political movements. <laughs> And and I suppose that's I guess a good we have thing to make a virtue of necessity. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, Debashish, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we could go on for a long time. We've Indeed. hardly begun to uh, enumerate all all of the different uh, cities, sure. uh, and, and it, 
it really requi- would require a lot of time. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I, I enjoyed this conversation with you, Jeffrey, and I think uh, we covered quite a lot of ground. We, we covered quite a lot, and, and I'm very grateful that you're able to come to Albuquerque, and I want to invite you back because I know that uh, there's much, much more to talk about. Thank you, Jeffrey. I look forward to it. Thank you, and thank you for being with us. Thank you.